0: So Ian, are you uh Pennsylvania? I am Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Lancaster, Amish.
1: Very Amish. Yeah. I, so
0: my my dad used to take us there when we were kids. okay. I yeah. did a lot of like uh um car ride vacations. yes, you know, kind
1: of like staycation slash.
0: yeah, like we did like Boston and d c and and I we never went to Aruba, you know, right. But I did Lancaster a bunch. Um Dutch Wonderland? Is yes. that the local? I was just there last weekend. Oh yeah.
1: So. That that's a great spot. I mean honestly, yeah, if you have fine, Dutch if you Wonderland kids under the age of 10, I it's do. like the perfect spot. Is that by Hershey owns them and so it's pretty high quality. I
0: can't it's, remember it's, if we drove past it. So I, we did Hershey with the boys 3 4 months ago. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's part like it was the roller coasters were great like for grown-ups. How old are your kids? Now? 6 and 4.
1: Yes. So we were we were there 2 weeks ago. We were, we don't need staycations like this year.
0: Instead. They have like badass roller coasters. They, have, oh Hershey. Is, I went by myself on a few. Hershey's big time. Yeah, yeah. And then Dorney, but it, it's it is it's kind of far. It's like a four hour drive. Yeah, from here. It's kind of far. Yeah, because it's such a quick turnaround. But stay at, at the. Um, you at the ho-
1: hotel well, Hershey or? is amazing.
0: Yeah, we stayed at the Hershey Hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah. that's the perfect. That's where we stayed too. Yeah. That's like that's pretty. It was great. And like it's the nice. indoor
0: water park was yep. fun. Um. Yeah, I think we, they like they like roller coasters. Did you get the chocolate beer? They have chocolate beer? Yeah. I don't know if I want chocolate beer. They have chocolate beer? beer? I didn't know yeah, that. Oh. Right at the hotel
2: that beer.
0: I had there a there, chocolate uh, martini, like maybe with Reese's or something.
1: Yeah, yeah that's their go-to, I think. Yeah, it was good. Forced one on my wife, so, yeah.
0: All right, close this, close Yeah, but Dutch this.
1: Wonderland's pretty good. They even, <laughs> I think in the last year they All started right. serving beer at Dutch Wonderland. <laughs> oh yeah? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Hershey served beer, it was great.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you get through the day there. but. My kids are too young. So you, like, Hershey Park, they yeah. last like two, you spend like 500 bucks to go there and then two hours into it. How old now. are your kids? They are seven and five. Okay. So it's right in that. Yeah. And they last about two hours and it was hot. And they're just like, let's just go back to the pool at the Hotel Hershey. I was like, yeah, I'd oh, rather do that too. I guess we my stayed, kid we stayed at the Hershey <laughs> Hotel. I loved it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I never
3: made it to Dutch Wonderland. Yeah,
0: we we're, were just talking about that. Or Sesame Place. It, yeah. So are there. Uh, Whenever you want this?
4: It's going to
0: be right here. There's like just horse and buggies, right? There are. In Lancaster, there are. Yeah.
1: yeah. But you can go through the whole county without seeing one. Like, they're, they're kind of in their own little communities. You have is to, that by, to go.
0: Is Lancaster by Intercourse? It is.
1: Yes. Intercourse is in Lancaster. <laughs> Gentlemen, it's a family show. And, and uh, Blue Ball is another one. All right, enough. And a bunch of other ones.
3: Hey, yes. uh, <laughs> you might have noticed that I'm wearing my Goat USA apparel. Uh, oh, so I we do. had said something maybe a little bit not nice. In on the honor show, right? of Independence Day. Oh, I, we, I like yours too. I, the flag. We no. said something? I might have said something that was <laughs> oh, not very— know. So let me defend myself a little bit, and shout-out to Goat USA for sending us— uh, Honestly, very comfortable T-shirts. Feels very nice, right? Not to brag. These really emphasize my pectoral muscles, which is good. Feel this. But uh, I said that Goat USA was for 12-year-old boys, and the reason I said it is because they opened a store in Roseville Field Mall, and my kid— has a hundred articles of clothing from Goat USA. And it's him and his friends that I see wearing it the most. But I want to set the record straight. Goat USA is for everyone. For everyone,
0: including me. You know what Chris and- said to me yesterday? He goes, why Goat USA send this stuff? We're not lacrosse players. I was like, what are you talking about? Chris is, Chris is hell-bent on this idea that they're a lacrosse brand because he sees his son's friends wearing it. I'm like, Well, that's—so I made the same mistake. It's like, oh, it's only little
3: kids wearing it. But— Apparently not. Apparently not. And you're never too old to be a kid. What's that? You so. got some
0: books? I brought some books. For what? It was he's gonna he's gonna, read, he's gonna
1: read them to us. Yeah, I was. <laughs> this is like what, literally it was on my desk and you know, I saw the last segment and I was like, I'll just bring what was on there. It's so this is Jesse Livermore's favorite book. My God? Really? Yeah, it was written Say eight, more.
0: written eighteen eighty. What is it? Jesse Livermore's favorite book? Yes. As a fine art and thoughts on life. I never heard of that.
1: Yeah. It's
0: who's, right. on the co- who's that a picture of? You don't recognize Dixon Watts? That is Dixon Watts, obviously. Oh. The yeah. Dixon Watts? Yeah.
1: He was the chairman of the Cotton Exchange back in like 1880 or something like that. But the great thing about books on finance pre-1920 is they're like 30 pages so you can like burn through them pretty It There wasn't quick. that much to say. There wasn't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, also Lifespan was like 50 years old, so you don't have that much time to read them. Yeah, and you can, if you search that on Google, there's plenty of PDFs you can pull down. But and not only is it 30 is-
0: pages, but it's for like an eight-year-old, this is <laughs> exactly. for an eight-year-old boy. That's I love it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Virtue is its own reward. So is vice. As, this feels biblical. Tyranny is the vice of a brutal man. Submission to it. The vice of a timid man. I, I've i been saying that about you. That sounds like somebody. Haven't I? Would, that sounds like a tweet. I've been saying that it's, about Josh. The best part is like the first six pages. That's pretty good.
1: But so I brought that one just because it was there. And, you know,
0: what else do you bring? Are these gifts or, or what? <laughs> no, I brought you get this kid. The, what what the else gifts were down bring? here. No, but what's the purpose of the books? I brought you. Ch- what was for he's the gonna, last segment he's of the gonna show? gonna tell us about oh, the books. Oh, been reading. Slow down. All right, I'm right. not actually gonna read them. I jumped, the like seconds, I jumped but, the gun. I jumped the gun, but you brought gifts. I did. We love gifts. Yeah.
3: Where did they go? We, we but, had them. Yeah, they're right here. Oh, let's gun? see. Let's see what <laughs> okay. look, this so. is. This is really nice. So you're like from the chocolate capital of America, basically. It right? really is. Yeah. So this,
1: what's this chocolate tier called? These are called Wilbur Buds. So, Wilbur Chocolate is the second oldest chocolate company in the country. You had Mike at Bud's. Yes. Okay. I could tell. His eyes lit up. There's there's none of that in him, though. I'm listening. And so, these Wilbur Bud's actually predate the Hershey Kiss. They were actually wrapped in foil originally. Oh, look at that. It's the same shape as a kiss. In 1890, they came out. So, I think Hershey Kiss was, I don't know, like 1910 or something like that. Okay. My my father-in-law worked at Wilbur Chocolate. So, this... This chocolate company is right in the heart of our small town in Littitz, which is, I think it's on there oh, somewhere. you're going for it right now?
2: I, I want to, yeah. What's the name of the cool little uh, concert venue in Lancaster?
1: Yeah, so what, another cool thing, Lidditz, where I come from, is, I don't know, the last three out of ten years is it's the coolest small town in America. And one of the things is, because of this chocolate company, the whole town smells like chocolate. It's right in the middle of the town. The second reason is Claire Global and Tate Towers, which are the largest concert they're the ones putting up the staging equipment, the lighting for all the big concerts internationally, from Jay Z to Taylor Swift to Elton John. They're the ones behind it. It originated out of this small town of Lidditz. They built a $200 million complex right out of town. And so the little airport of Lancaster is always having, you know, Taylor Swift flying in, Elton John. They have this huge area where these artists can come in and perform, mm. like literally how they do in stadiums, but just to practice. So it's, it's the largest venue in the world. And so you can literally oh, wow. go to the pub that's in Littitz and, like, you see, like, these random amazing artists just walking in, having a beer. That's incredible. like that. The other, that's I think so it's, random. Like, it is. Of
3: all the places. And I guess it has to happen somewhere.
1: Yeah. And I think the other random thing that makes it cool is, I think we have, um, I think it's a third in the, in the United States, Rolex production factory right in town. In Lidditz, Pennsylvania.
3: Yeah. How nearby that is uh Banshee? I don't know. Where is Banshee? It's I I don't know. It's a TV show. I don't know. Uh, Maybe it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> These are really good. <laughs> Which one did you have? The
0: light one or the? Dark I'm a milk one? chocolate guy. Nicole, yeah. did you taste one? No. Now, one. why why is Hershey Hershey the, the and this color. is this? Like, there's got to be a great business story there.
1: There is. I mean, this company got taken over by I don't know three or four different mm. um, good, right? people over the last hundred years. Now it's owned by Cargill, so they came in and because they're make they're like the dominant player now in chocolate, like they are in anything food. You know, Cargill. Now, or, how much THC is in these? <laughs> how, many mil- Mill- how
3: many milligrams would you say in what i just ate uh i'm surrounded by people eating the chocolate mushrooms now like literally like to go out to dinner on a- it's too much for me i i don't do it but like i don't like to be around it either you're having dinner with elon musk no oh, he's yeah, not so bad. ketamine that's like a whole other that's a whole other thing that we we'll- we can get into uh, wait but, right. you-
0: but you microdose chocolate no i don't do any but of that physical shit. chocolate
3: yeah, no actual chocolate. <laughs> no, yes. you macro those. I macro those. That's right. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Thank you for that. All right, how are we looking? Ready We're to cook it up? We're good, right? We're good. Yeah. All right. Let's do the show already. With this is an important picks. man. Let's get Let's get rolling. Hey, John. What show is this? Josh. Express
4: Night, nine. <laughs> Episode
3: 99. Oh my God. Wow. Episode 99.
2: Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
3: Hey, everyone. It's me, Downtown Josh Brown. I'm here with my friend Rob Passarella, and we want to tell you about... Probably the book that you should be reading this summer. This is Only the Dead by Jack Carr. You are fired up about this book. Tell us why. Josh, there's
4: no reason not to be fired up, right? You have to really enjoy it. Long start. Okay. Yeah, could be. be. Jack Carr is one of those authors in the thriller space now. Unbelievably hot. This is his sixth book. Okay. He's done this six times already. Okay. And every time it gets even more intense.
3: What's his background?
4: Jack was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. Okay, like serious, like this is like real Navy shit. This is a guy who was in the middle of Afghanistan, Iraq, the whole bit.
3: Okay, so the story is uh, also been turned into a Chris Pratt series on Amazon Prime called The Terminal List. Is that based on one of the first books in the series? That's
4: right. The first okay. book was basically uh, a vengeance story, if you will, or getting even for uh, the main character who's a guy by the name of James Reese. In his case, his team gets wiped out. And of course, it's a secret conspiracy, government cabal and business and the whole bit. You love the book? Love the book. Love okay. the
3: author. So the book is called Only the Dead, written by Jack Carr, Rob Passarella's favorite author of the moment. And this is available where? Everywhere?
4: Everywhere, obviously. And there's a link in the show notes that's actually going to point out where you can get it from uh, Shimon and Schuster.
3: Okay. I will be reading this this summer. Rob might even read it again. Is that true?
4: I've read them all, so I might have to read all it right.
3: again, Jeremy. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And please check out Only the Dead by Jack Carr. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound, and friends, this is going to be an episode where we talk about things that we really have never gotten into before. We're not going to spend an hour on the Federal Reserve. We're really going to get into investing and the nitty-gritty of investing as viewed through the prism of microcap stocks, we have with us today one of the foremost experts on the asset class. Is that fair? Can I say that? Um, you know, in the top 30. Top 30. Yeah. One, oh, this is one of the top 30 experts on microcap <laughs> investing in America. I'm going to bump you up. I'm going to say top five. All right. Because I don't Appreciate know that. any of the other 29. <laughs> I, or maybe I do, and I don't realize. They're all living it. in their parents' basements. That's right. Okay. Ian Castle is a full time microcap investor and the CIO of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management also the founder of Microcap Club. Ian began his investing career as a teenager and learned from losing his money over and over again. Was Michael your mentor? Uh, today, Ian uses his past experiences to teach people about the value in microcaps and believes that the key to outsized returns is finding great companies early because all great companies started as small companies. True. True. So, very few fully formed uh, even the Fang stocks were microcaps at some point. They might not have been publicly traded, but that's a very important point, I feel like. No, it is. I mean, it's one of those things you can't deny. Like, every every company started as a small one. Okay. I want to talk about your backstory first, because the question is, like, why microcaps? Why should anybody uh, pay attention to the space? So why don't you tell us about how you got started investing in microcap stocks? So my origin
1: story started when I was a teenager. So to date me, I'm 42. Radioactive spider bite. Exactly. And yeah. then? Just started making money. Right? Right. Warren
0: Buffett bit him on the neck. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Yeah. Hey, okay. Buffett started at Microcaps too, but we'll get into that. But uh, started in, so this is like late 90s dot-com bubble. Um, I was 16. My parents sat me down and said, we'd save for you around $20,000 for your college education. This is all you're getting. We wanted you to know when you're a sophomore, junior in high school. We'll open up a, a an account with our financial advisor. We'll plop it in there. Whatever you want to do to to it, you can. But this is all you're getting. So you can okay. go in debt if you want. Um, so basically, my the advisor kind of introduced me to small cap companies, and that was a, the best time to get introduced to this him. This Ed 96. Jones. Yeah, Is a broker at Ed Jones. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so anyway, so I ended up putting that twenty thousand into about three stocks, and over the next four. Years or so, turned the twenty thousand to one hundred and twenty thousand. You know, thinking I w- it was skillful when it was one hundred and fifty percent luck.
0: Can I and, jump in? Sure. How did you not sell or how did you not trade? Because I feel like most novice investors, the first thing that they do is they trade. So how did you have the discipline, like at such an early age, to let something let twenty thousand run up to hundred and not sell at like thirty?
1: Maybe it was because I just was so inexperienced. Like I was just like caught, you know, bit by the greed bug. So I just like let it run. You know, every day it goes up. I mean, yeah.
3: So tell people what time frame that is, because that, that's a good, great question, Michael. It's important to point out this is
1: late '90s. Yeah,
3: you never felt like you needed to sell.
1: No, there was no point. It was just like it's Crazy. just going to go up tomorrow. Yeah, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, you <laughs> know. So that's 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 how it was. And so by the time I graduated high school, which would have been 1999, um, you know, I said, well, you know, I don't really don't want to waste this on a college education. I'll just go to a local university. You know, work almost full time commute. In the chocolate and, mines? Yes, in yeah. the chocolate mines, digging out the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so I did a, that's what I did. And so I'd, I went to a local university. I was able to kind of pay for it as I went. And, um, and then when I basically was working for a financial advisor then, Edward Jones, during college, and I was basically a branch office administrator, glorified receptionist answering the phones. And when that bubble popped, you know that 120,000 turned into about 8,000. All those small cap tech stocks I own turned into micro caps on the way down. That's how I got it. Got baptized into the micro cap ecosystem. You so went in backwards. Yeah, exactly. You started
3: out in small caps. They just became micro caps. The second thing okay.
1: that the second thing that happened was I always thought I was going to be a financial advisor. You know, my the uh, the gentleman that I was with. I mean, he had a decent sized business. So I thought he was going to goodnight me some assets. You know, open up a branch five miles down the road and sing kumbaya. But Kind of dealing with people's emotions during the downdraft of that time period. You know, I kind of came out of that saying, I don't really want to deal with other people's emotions at all. Oh, you know? because right, you're answering the phones. So you already see exactly. what that you already see what that world is. And exactly. maybe that's not the world that you want it to be in. Yeah. And so basically the one twenty turned into eight. And I started looking at microcaps because I owned a few. And uh, the first one I really looked at in earnest was XM Satellite Radio, which kind of was the predecessor to Sirius Satellite Radio. And I, in fact, XM was sort of the first one here in the United States mm-hmm. to launch a service. Mm-hmm. But back in 2001, 2002, it was a microcap. Uh, and had about $2 billion in debt from launching these satellites up into space. They had no really any real subscribers at all. And the stock was 41% held short. So everybody was betting that was going to go bankrupt. But, but, you know, this, again, this is 2001, you know, it's hard for people to remember, but terrestrial radio, you drive 20 miles out of your local area, you lose a connection, you have to find a new station. You know, I love the story of just thinking about crystal clear radio nationwide was appeasing to me. So I fell in love with the story. It was a story stock. I saw that Hugh Panera, the CEO of XM Satellite Radio, was presenting up here in New York. Again, I'm from Lancaster, three-hour train ride or bus ride away. And I called up the conference organizer, and I was a... Have been maybe a junior in college, and I just said, "Hey, I'm Ian Castle with Castle Capital." I you know, made that up. Is it okay if I come to your event? And they said, "Sure." You know, I'm like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so ahead. you know, put on my suit that I wore for my high school photos. Luckily, I still fit into it. I had some fake business cards made and and took a bus up here to New York. And kind of long story short, I was able to weasel my way into a one on one with the CEO for about 10 minutes before he had his next institutional one-on-one meeting. He's like, meeting. Who,
3: who is this child? Oh, exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. My okay. eyes were as big as saucers, you know. And so spent 10 minutes talking to him, kind of came out of that experience, you know, just saying, oh, wow, I just want to buy this stock. So I ended up taking the bus ride home, putting $8,000 into XM at $1.78 per share. Yeah. And almost immediately, you know, they started uh, refinancing their debt, start, start, started signing other car manufacturers. What did you say to
0: the CEO that made him do that? To what yeah you made
1: it go up right yeah it was only that easy uh, so anyway it, it ended up going from a dollar 78 to 34 dollars per share in 14 Jeez. months
3: which most people will invest an entire lifetime and never ever have experience and no, you had that ridiculous. at 20 years old
1: yeah and it's okay and it was mainly due to the short covering rally because like whatever percent held still short, counts it still counts that's right you know i didn't hold it obviously the whole way um, and then it later merged with Sirius. And then it, you know, Sirius is now kind of the one that everybody hears about. But it really right. started with XM back then. And so that's thats what kind of started my love affair with these small public companies that the ability for a moron like me to sit across the table from a CEO of a public company and actually gain knowledge, you know, qualitative knowledge out of because that. Because that CEO is more
3: likely to talk to you than the head of like Infinity Broadcasting or whoever were the giant
1: radio companies at that time. Exactly. Or, or okay. anybody, anybody, anybody over a right. billion dollar are, market cap.
0: Are there big differences between investing in companies with a market How do we define mic- microcap by the way? Well, now? Hold what on. is it? So
3: hold on, let's let's get into let's let's set this up.
0: What do you mean hold on?
3: And I I can size up the space for you. You're asking the right qu- you're, you're asking the right question. But it's just not coming out of your mouth. <laughs> no, no, no. I want him to tell us. So, size up the space in terms of how many companies are there what is a micro cap definitionally, and
1: how big is the market cap overall of all of these companies sure. combined? Yeah, so the so here in North America, so U.S. and Canada, there's roughly twenty three thousand stocks that trade publicly. Uh, around ten thousand would be considered micro caps. So, so half the market, almost half the market is, and that's Did sub you know that? sub five hundred million market cap. So five hundred. That's million a million micro cap micro cap less. is is five hundred million or less. Yeah, some. It depends if microcap is in vogue or not. Some people inch it up or inch it down if it's not. But yeah. usually it's around five. So or half nine. the
0: number of companies, but probably less than one half of 1%
1: well, in it, market cap? So if you would take all of those micro caps in the US and Canada and roll them up into a holding company, it would be about $600 billion, the market capitalization. Oh,
0: okay. So not, not nothing. It's, not, it's not, nothing. not nothing.
1: Yeah. there's I mean, there's eight, eight publicly traded single companies today that have over that type of market cap. Um, right. So it just shows you kind of how big and how small it is. I mean, as a whole, too, just another little thing is I think um, last time I looked, there was about 2.1 million jobs supported by microcap companies in North America, and that's mm. as many as Walmart.
0: Wait, 2.1
1: million For all, all microcaps? All microcaps in North America.
3: Yeah, so these are small—they're not just small stocks. They're small businesses. You said that 7,500 of the 23,000 public stocks in America— are actually sub-100 million. Yeah, so there's
1: 7,500 of the 23,000 that are actually sub-100 million. Micro, micro, nano caps. That would be considered nano caps. And that's really, sub-100 million is when you really start seeing like no institutional awareness of those companies. Right. And, you know, that's also kind of the benefit to... the. See, that was the shit, when I was a retail
3: broker, that was the shit that we were taught to sell Nano caps, yeah. and we made a market in them. And we can, you know, like five firms, all on Long Island, maybe one on Staten Island. We controlled in Boca. So. We control, yeah, and a couple in Boca. We control the market. I, I say we. I, I had no idea. The trading um, desks in those firms controlled the market cap because there were no established market makers doing anything with them, and then there were rips, and that was like a whole other subcategory, but you point out 20% of microcaps are actually profitable companies. Yeah. 35% have revenues over $10
1: million a year. Yep. Are those the ones that you focus on specifically? Yeah, pr- pretty much. I mean, so I'm primarily looking for, you know, the real companies that are that are in that sandbox, you know. Right. And, and my flavor of investing is might be different than another microcap investor. I mean, you can find the same flavors of investing down here as you do in large cap. You know, you have deep value, value growth. People focusing on life science. People focus on this or that. You have the same things. It's just these are smaller companies. Do you yeah.
0: buy? Do you buy small caps that were that microcap was forced upon them, or are you buying companies that are on the way up and hopefully growing out and maturing out of that phase?
1: So that's a that's a good question. So I am more drawn to rising stars, what I would call them, than a fallen angel. Because I like to find new ideas, ideas that haven't disappointed anybody yet. Okay. Um, you know, rather than, yeah, there's tons of SPACs that are down from a 2 billion market cap to 80 million, but yeah. they've already disappointed 90% of people. They already has, still have four analysts covering them. They're, they're just too known. Yeah. I'd rather find something new that has, they're, that me- has yet they're to have messy. That. They're not like companies with promise, they're like yeah. companies with pissed off shareholder base. Yeah.
3: Um. You mentioned that most of the greatest investors ever started in microcaps. And most of the best performing stocks ever started as microcaps, meaning yeah. they didn't go public with a huge valuation.
1: Yeah. So um,
3: so talk about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, Joel Greenblatt, you can go down the list. They all started their careers investing in microcaps for those same reasons. Is that reasons. true? What was yeah. Warren
3: Buffett's first stock purchase? It well, was actually, a microcap, right? Berkshire
1: Hathaway itself was a microcap and on an inflation adjusted basis back when he took it over. So it was a tiny company. It was a microcap. So yeah. all you have to do is find another couple of those. Yeah. It's so easy, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, but, uh, but all those. I mean, it makes sense because this is where the structural advantage of the investor is that large institutional smarter money can't invest in these companies because the illiquidity profile, you know, it doesn't make sense for a billion dollar fund to worry about a sub hundred million dollar market cap, you know, company that they'd they'd have to buy, you know, 20% of the business to even have an allocation. Okay,
3: 80% of the stocks that went up 10x or more between 2012 and 2022 originated out of the micro cap ecosystem. Globally. Yeah. Yeah. What
1: are what are a few of those? So I think it was Jenga Investment Partners out of London did a report globally on all companies between May of 2012 and May 2022. And uh, one of the things I think it was like 83% of the companies that made the biggest returns originate out of the microcap ecosystem. And that was I mean, that was companies that trade on the Nordic exchanges from the NASDAQ globally. But, you know, it, it just shows that, you know, the the big winners come out of these small companies. And it makes sense. I mean, Caesar- What's the biggest one up. that
3: you could think of other than the XM uh, radio
1: uh, example? So on Microcap Club, which is a website that started in 2011, which basically, I was a, my whole goal when I graduated college was to become a full-time private investor.
4: Mm.
1: And luckily I was able to reach that goal And the depths of the GFC. So in, it was like May of 2009, cut the cord with a couple consulting gigs I was doing. And then came up, kind of came up with the idea of I want to launch microcapclub.com, which was basically a private forum for experienced investors like me in this niche of investing. Talk about these I want to see the idea flow globally. Yeah, yeah. I want to get the best investors in this niche, talk about what they liked and why. And so since 2011, um, and again, I wasn't monetizing the site back then. It was costing me 30 grand a year just to have it and look professional, look better than what we were. You know, I didn't monetize until like 2017. Um, but today, it's a pretty cool brand. I think it's the best one in the in the in the world, quite honestly. And and one of the things we do is we track the performance of every single company that was profiled by a member. So if you're a member, you might profile a small company. It starts with a thesis. Starts with what's a, a profile like? Seeking Alpha style, just a write up on a yeah, stock quick. that people don't know about. Two okay. to three page investment thesis, kind of yeah. on your favorite microcap. And yeah. so, you know, just to give you some stats, so there's been 900 companies profiled on Microcap Club since the site was started um 164 of them have been acquired. Oh um, wow. Um and obviously there's some big winners in there. The the you mentioned winners. The the biggest winner was a company is a company called Expel, E X P E L. It's still a sub $2 billion market cap company today. Okay. But it was profiled um by a member in 2014 at 36 cents per share. It hit $100 a share last year. Wow. Still God. still $87 a share. So that's a 200 bagger. Okay. You know. And you didn't have my email or well, okay. I, ironically enough, this is the sad. I remember traveling around to deal. So, Expel. They make the paint protection film that's on the front of cars. So, if you have a high-end car or even a you know middle car, you know you probably have an option to put kind of this clear plastic film on the front of your car to protect it from rock chips. And we stumbled upon it in 2013, and it was again 36 cents stock, which that would have been a uh, eight million market cap. That's eight. Not 8 80, million. not 800,
3: eight. And it's, it's, now it's almost 2 billion, you said? Yeah, it's about 1. 1.7, 1. 1.8 billion. So wouldn't a, wouldn't a smart strategy, I'm sure this has been attempted, so I'm like, I kind of know the answer. But intuitively, wouldn't a really smart, uh, repeatable kind of factory strategy be to buy microcaps right at the precipice of when they're crossing over into small cap? And like, of course, not all of them will keep going up. But, of course, the one that's about to become a mid-cap has to pass through small-cap first. So maybe that's your filter. Like, that's your screener. Has that kind of thing been attempted in a quantitative way before that you're aware of?
1: I think it— has I know a lot of people try to game the Russell inclusion, which just happened what, last week. Yeah, yeah, you know where they try to game that. Like they a lot of these companies enter the the iShares microcap index. Yeah, or they, so the news
3: comes out and people piled into stocks that were like right on the bubble.
1: Yeah, and I, if you get one right, you get a seven percent one day pop. Right, exactly. Okay. But I would take it a step. Well, not a step further. I guess a step back. What I've during the GFC. I was invested in three companies. Again, that's when I was kind of making make the transition to being a private full-time investor. You know, two of them went down 50%, which was on par with the market. I think the S&P was down 52. 57. Kind of 57. Yeah, close enough. It's close to that. Yeah. And But the other one I owned was a small, profitable, growing 10 million market cap company. It was a company called Zag, Z-A-G-G. They made that thin plastic film for phones for the iPhone. So, oh, okay. So it turned out... I remember visiting the company in Utah in July of 2008, and they were they were on like a 10 million run rate, breaking even. And they just got, people just started buying it because the the second generation iPhone was about to come out. People needed to protect their screens and their iPhone with something. And so their business went from 10 million a year to $20 million a year. It went from breaking even to earning 20 cents. And that's, yeah. how, that's how you get a 10-bagger, actually. You know, yeah. just something that can go, that can move the revenue line 10 to 20 million and put more you know earnings per share on the bottom line quickly and during and that happened during that gfc when the market was tanking cuz iPhones were brand new and the was. growth was inevitable and this company wasn't There's another the company wasn't owned by institutions so nobody could sell it mm. you know which was another thing i learned so what was interesting was that company went up 280% during that time period and it was mainly because what i learned was institutional which institutions did come in institutions are always attracted to growing businesses that you know, can increase their earnings per share that they don't own. Right. You know, and what I found is actually the smaller area of MicroCap is where I want to be because they're also not included in the indices. They're not owned by institutions that are getting redemptions during downturns in the market. Like the smaller segment actually isn't like the quantum realm. Yeah. You're they, right. Watch Ant Man. Yeah. You want to be right. in the quantum yes, exactly. realm.
3: Um, what you are, so this area that you are involved with and that you're passionate about, it's, it's a double edged sword. On the one hand, this is like the dream of every investor, that they're going to buy something at 20 cents that goes to $100. Like what investor, at least in the beginning, doesn't dream of that? And so that's the good part, is that it has, has actually happened. It's not frequent, but it's possible. It is a thing that has happened. The other, the other side of the coin, though, is because everybody is looking for that lottery-like return in stocks— there are like a lot of shady operators and they just so happen to um, be able to utilize microcap stocks better than larger stocks. They can move them. They can share news that doesn't exist because nobody's paying attention. Um, they don't really have to compete with any actual, you know, like they, there are a lot of elements to microcaps that lend themselves to obviously people with bad intentions saying, let me get in here and manipulate something or whatever. So I, I know you're yeah. highly aware that there's a perception of that. You seem to be almost battling against that perception with like real professional investors on a platform talking about these companies. Um, do I have that story right? That that's kind of like the the yin and the yang of this. Yeah, it, it is.
1: And I don't want to paint the picture. This is easy. I mean, if it was easy, I wouldn't be here. I'd be on a my own island somewhere right you know it's 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 hard to do this and it's it's not a game of batting average it really is slugging percentage kind of like venture capital or private equity so you
3: need the really big wins to uh outweigh the many 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 things that go wrong
1: yeah and it, it, but it, but it's not you know, zero or one. It's not like they're zeros. I mean, a loss can be like you don't make as much money as you think. And a lot of the yeah. a lot of the issues that investors face that are new to biker cap investing is they they focus on the story stocks that don't have revenue, that don't have profits. You know, what I tell people new to the space, you know, focus on the real businesses, the twenty percent of biker caps that actually make money. Right.
3: You're not looking for a biotech microcap that is putting out press releases about curing cancer. Yeah.
0: You're looking for businesses. Yeah. Not and ideas. Why why are these companies even public? Like, why why be publicly traded with a market cap of $25 million?
1: Well, it used to be access to capital. And it's, it's a great question because it's different from geography to geography. So here in the United States, there's fewer companies going public. and But that is mainly the result. This doesn't get talked about a lot, Josh, too. It, it all started back in 2010. There used to be 800 reverse mergers done a year in the U.S. 800. SPACs. Uh, no. shell, shell, shell companies. They're kind of shells, yeah. Where,
3: so a non public company could merge into a shell, it didn't require there to be a public offering or a SPAC going public. It was just a dead company that was like had a publicly traded symbol Mm -hmm. and not much else. If you were a private company that weren't big enough to go public via IPO, you could just like reverse merge yourself into one of these shells and instantly you had a public security. And it it didn't take
1: you know, it's SPAC like, it's SPAC like kind of eerily spec like because what happened yeah it was basically a public shell with nothing in it with a trading symbol. You merge a private business into it. And a lot of- so back until 2010 there was seven eight hundred of these done a year where usually a company would raise one to three million, you know, a small amount of capital. And they would just go public. What happened was there was some Chinese frauds that came public that way in 2010. Many, many, many of them. Yeah. And it and it kind of just put you know the clamp on that means of going public. Were these shell
0: companies like people that squat on websites or was it companies that used to have a business that just didn't get delisted or whatever? Like-
1: the, the SEC would let them trade for a period of time, even if there was nothing you know in it. Um, and so what happened, I think this is like one of this is another topic, but one of the reasons why we've seen such a decline though in public equities here in the U S just the amount of companies is because it went from 800 companies going public that way to 100 in about a year. And it's been about a hundred ever since then. That's seven hundred less companies going public. Uh, we've
0: we've spoken about this a million times. The decline of IPOs, and there used to be so much more activity. But a lot of the activity was microcaps. That's what I mean. It was the it was this way of going public, right. And yes, ninety percent of them shouldn't been public, and
1: probably. But you're still kind of large, law of large numbers. Maybe twenty or thirty of them ended up up listing up to the NASDAQ. I have another.
3: I have another story that plays into this, which is that I was there for the changeover from fractions to decimals. Decimalization absolutely killed the micro cap and small cap market in terms of listings. Because back then, if you were a third tier brokerage firm, broker dealer, you would do 15, 20 IPOs a year. They were tiny companies, but the way you made your money was by taking a quarter. So you would make a market in the stock, totally legitimate. Mm-hmm. You'd make a mar- When somebody says totally legitimate, that's how you know it's not. <laughs> no, this was acceptable. This was. All right, I'm the market maker in this stock. I'm a broker dealer. The stock is 10 by 10 and a quarter, right? Bid ask. I'm probably gonna steal an eighth in the middle, but it's not stealing. That's like my compensation for making a market in that stock. And because I'm doing that, I want there to be as much volume in the stock as possible. How do I get volume in the stock? I hire a research analyst. The research analyst is writing reports on the company and actually paying attention. Decimalization happened in, I think, 2000. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm, I think you're okay. right. So decimalization happens, and all of a sudden, there's no eighth by eighth by a quarter or a quarter by three-eighths. That whole spread is gone. You have stocks basically trading a penny by, by, by two pennies. And in, with the lack of that ability for market makers to make money, a couple of things happen. Number one, the New York Stock Exchange gets hollowed out. All those guys in jackets are gone. Number two, Sherwood – uh, you know, all, all, of, the, all of those uh, market-making firms have to get acquired or fold. But then number three, you end up with thousands of companies where there's no more research written on them. Small, small cap broker dealers have no more incentive to hire analysts to cover them. So that's how you end up with a situation with all this detritus left over. Shells, like, you know, em- empty shells trading, just a ticker symbol, um, no smaller IPOs, existing companies with no analyst coverage. I feel like that probably led to a lot of opportunity mm. for people that wanted to do the work. The firms got out of the business of doing the work.
1: Yeah, the system stopped being greased. You know, their yes. their, their ability to make money from these companies kind of went away. Yeah, so I, I watched decline. all that play
3: out mm-hmm. and I was at a small brokerage firm. That was the bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Do small IPOs, support them with research, have the trading desk trade those stocks and teach the brokers how to sell those stocks to the public. And yeah. it just, it it vaporized.
1: Well, so, and to answer your question about here in the US, so a lot of times like the new ideas are just kind of like a new management team takes over an existing company, provides a capital infusion, they're kind of the new owners with a new strategy and it becomes something new. You know, so that's a lot of times what a new thing looks like here in the US. You still have real companies going public small in Canada and Australia. So, you still have companies going public doing a, you know, real businesses that are profitable, you know, raising 10 million dollars going public. And it's kind of embarrassing because these countries have, you know, 30 million compared to our 350 million. And they have a more fervent capital market structure for their small companies than we do. And it's embarrassing. Um, but that's just the truth. I mean, a lot of the we see tons of companies that go public that are based here in the U.S., but they list in Australia or they list in Canada. Ridiculous. And it, it is ridiculous.
3: Um, you have a slide here that I think uh, does a really good job of explaining the difference between, let's say, a typical stock and a micro-cap stock. So, you're saying this is the difference between a micro cap and a mid cap, but you're showing us Target, not quite a mid cap?
1: Uh, I don't know. What's a mid
3: cap? I don't know anymore. I, I don't 62 know. 62 billion? No, it's large. 62 is large? Is that large? It it's though? not mega. But it's Me- large. Apple is 3 trillion. 60, 60 is target is large a large cap? Large cap? It's all a large right. cap, yeah. Fine. Let's call it a large cap. But well, first
0: of all, it's in the SP 500, it's a large cap stock.
3: Fair. Yeah. All yeah. Right, fair enough. All right. Okay. So that, this was just a, all
1: right. So what else did you get wrong? No, i was kidding. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Everything here.
1: Uh, Got Walk us through this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is just a good illustration. So, you know, obviously you have target on the left, you see the market cap, you see how much money is traded every day in it. You see the amount of analysts, you see how much of, of the float is owned by institutions. And then you see a micro cap, and this would be probably a nano cap as a dollar a share, 51 million market cap. You know, it, it, trades $40,000 worth a day. There's no analysts. There's probably not an institution. I just put one on there to be fair. Um,
3: and so you're saying, so for, by comparison, Target has 1,900 institutions. They own 85% of it. 39 analysts follow it. Trading volumes, $500 million a day. Market cap, 62, billion. right. So these don't look, these are like completely different
1: species. Well, and, and a lot of people would say they would look on the right and 98% of people would be horrified at what you're looking at right and and it's but i actually reframe that or invert that and say in the microcap space what you find is at least the people that are successful you have to form your own you have to do your own independent research you have to form your own independent conviction because no one else is doing it because no one's doing the work and i think that actually reinforces the type of thing we need more of you know from stock picking so it's not too far-fetched also that it just creates some great investors come out of the microcap but isn't that.
0: that harder? Because you're not competing with price insensitive buyers or people that don't know anything about the company. You're you're buying from people that are selling to you who happen to m- know at least as much as you. Not in all cases, obviously, but these are these are informed buyers and sellers. Sometimes are they? Yeah, I would say so, the opposite. Sometimes. How so? I
1: would say there's well, a who lot of dumb money said. in Ian, thirty cent stocks. <laughs> no, is but is that Ian, crazy to that. think that? I I think it really it's situational. What I've found is there's very few people that really know what they own. You could probably say that about everything. But especially right. in microcap,
0: myself included. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're saying people are more likely to be gamblers in microcaps. That's what I, that's yeah. my
1: guess. Yeah, it's
3: pr- that's, that's predominantly what you have. You think it's more likely to be savvy investors in I, in pe- penny stocks? Yeah.
0: If you're if you're like, well, that's a fair point. If you're likely to speculate your ass off, I would just say you're just buying and selling Nvidia or something. Like, why go all the way down market to this? Oh,
3: do you hate that term,
1: penny stock? That I, is it a pejorative? I it, wanted to ask you that. It it sort of is. Yeah. I mean, it's you, f- up, so right? so penny stock is sub five dollars. It really has Nothing to do, with, I guess, with micro or market cap, but it's but, but it balance. sounds pejorative. It, it is it's
3: never used in a positive way. It isn't.
1: Well, well okay. and, and and that's the
3: issue too. So you say micro cap very pointedly. You're not like I'm penny stocks.com. No, no, no.
1: I don't blame you. I yeah. wouldn't either. If I would increase search results, I would say penny stocks, but you know, hot not penny about stocks. That. Yeah, exactly. Try the best. <laughs> uh,
3: are micro caps economically sensitive the way people think small caps are? Are they interest rate sensitive? And I ask that question because at the moment. There is a small cap rally underway on Wall Street, and a lot of people are framing it as like a catch-up trade. Small caps have been absolutely trounced by large caps for the last, I don't know, 15 years mm-hmm. now. Um, but every once in a while, they have a moment, and it seems to coincide with like economic data getting better or something with interest rates. So there, whether you believe in it or not, there does seem to be some sort of corollary with the economy. And how small caps either perform or underperform? So I'm curious: Do micro caps share that same sensitivity, or
1: is it like the quantum realm
3: where, like, they have their own laws of physics and it doesn't really
1: behave that way? I think it depends on what type of company you're looking at. If there's, it's a company that needs funded, it increases the cost of capital. You know, in this type of then environment. that will be affected. But. Um, you could also invert that and say some of these companies are kind of dominate a niche area, geography, an area of the market where you can actually get away from a lot of the macro kind of worries because these companies are so small. It's kind of like the, a zag example during the GFC. It's just like it didn't really matter. You know, the thing was going to grow 100 percent a year because it was so small. All they need was a few more customers to grow. Even so what the
3: data part. of the GFC, like the great financial crisis. Um, forces weren't at work on the company's fundamentals. Correct, and therefore didn't really disturb the stock. Correct. Okay, yeah. that, I mean that makes intuitive sense to me yeah. that you could be so small where economic forces are
1: not relevant, and
3: there was no large holders in that stock to sell it.
1: You know that needed liquidity. Which is another redemption.
3: part of the, for people right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So you don't have mutual funds that are getting redeemed and then blowing out of the stock. Yeah, people
1: like blowing out of the you know the Russells or, or whatever it is. Yeah. Or,
0: or how many of these stocks trade over the counter?
1: Is it most all? It's around, I think there's 8,000 companies that trade on the OTC markets or thereabouts. Could you define that way?
3: for our listeners, um, over-the-counter versus like listed? Uh, wh- like what would be your definition on, on both sides?
1: So you, you have companies that trade on the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, that are sub-100 million market cap. But they're, they, but they're listed stocks. They're listed stocks. It's called listed. And then you have what's called the OTC markets. Which used to be called the OTCBB, which Building used board. to be called the pink sheets. pink sheets. Yeah, yeah, and that that kind of another negative term.
3: Yeah, nobody towards, wants to hear pink towards sheets, penny stocks. Yeah. Um, In but fact, Duncan, the- edit this whole subject, this whole <laughs> this whole topic. Out. All right, what? go ahead.
2: Can I have a question about that? What is that referencing? Pink sheet. Where does that come from?
3: It was literally printed on sheet. Like, you want to tell them?
2: Go ahead. About now, you're you're some, already halfway there. I was about right, to yeah. make some
3: shit up. No, that's <laughs> no. I think it was because I init- think it was initially stocks were printed, and you would get printouts, and you knew you knew the category based on what color it was printed on. And there was there was also, you know, and I think blue chip comes from the same thing, right? I will agree with that. Okay, yeah. I'm I, I'm not 100 <laughs> percent sure. And then BB is bulletin board. So because these stocks were not on an exchange, they would literally have to put the prices on a bulletin board,
1: mm-hmm. like physically. So, okay, keep and going. Even up to like the 1970s, you had regional exchanges like in Spokane or these other areas around the country.
3: Are you fact-checking me? Look, can yes.
1: we get a
0: camera? <laughs> the history of the pink sheets. I was trying to provide All context right. for the audience. No, okay,
1: go ahead, go ahead. So, so you, you have a lot of companies that trade in the OTC markets, but you have a lot of big companies that trade in the OTC markets as well. Uh,
3: yeah, like Nestle.
1: Ex- exactly, Okay, yeah.
3: so, so right, you have this Rush, whole other category. You yeah. have ADRs, but mm-hmm. they're- but are they, are they even ADRs, or are they just... I don't know what they're categorized
1: as, okay. but there's quite a few, like, really large companies that just... Foreign
3: issuers of large, like, large companies, but they don't want to adhere to all of the New York Stock Exchange's rules,
1: right? Yeah. So they're technically... I guess, is pink sheets the right word, or are they just well, OTC? Well, in OTC markets, there's different tiers. And, you know, basically, the more transparent you are, the, you move up the tiers. Okay. And so, you know, you a lot of... The upper tier is almost the same as having New York Stock Exchange Company. They still file their reports at the SEC. They're still doing audited financials. They do their 10Qs, 10Ks, 8Ks, everything. You know, they just happen to just trade on the OTC markets because it's a cheaper place to trade.
0: What are some of the actual differences if you're entering an order? If you're trying to buy something that trades $40,000 worth of shares a day, obviously you have to be careful not to move the stock price.
1: I don't think there is much anymore. Like I used to, maybe 10 years ago, I felt like it was just not as good, you know? But now I think it's,
0: Thank you Citadel. You
1: don't, yeah, yeah. You don't have as many algos out there, kind of working against you, you know, either on the OTC. What I've found, so hmm. I, I, I don't think it's that different anymore.
3: Let's throw this chart up. IShares Microcap ETF, which I didn't even know that existed, versus the the larger market indices year to date.
0: Microcap investors hate the index, right? We do. Yeah. So this is, but yeah, I, w- this I This wonder- doesn't
3: make you look good. So just for the listener. We're showing year-to-date, the NASDAQ's up 30%, S&P up 14%, uh, Dow Jones, up, is that right? Dow Jones only up 2% this yeah. year? Ugh. Uh, and then micro-cap is, the microcap ETF is flat, but you don't think that that's representative of the asset class?
1: No, no, not really. I mean, the, the Russell microcap is, um, I think it was 1,400 companies in there, 70% are unprofitable. Um, I think the worst way to own microcap is to own all of them.
3: Yeah, that you makes know. sense to me too.
1: That, that's why it's a stock picker's market.
3: Yeah, why would you want to own them as an asset class? That's not really the benefit. The it's benefit not. is to
1: find the ones that are legitimate exactly. and not getting credit for it. Exactly. And that's why okay. that's why it's hard to get real exposure to microcaps is because ma- mainly firms come out with a vehicle, but it's meant to scale. And honestly- you, Well, that's exactly it, right. you know why
0: You know why this is not real exposure? Because I'm, I'm holding up a chart of IWC and IWM and they're almost the exact same thing. I, what's IWC? IWC. Uh, micro cap, oh, uh, and there's no reason that they should be because yeah. small caps are big companies, right?
1: Well, and I think that I think even in the in the in the microcap index, there's maybe 20% of them have market caps over a billion. So right.
0: There's, so there's, that's there's, not more, that's a micro no,
1: cap. No, it's so it's not really
3: okay. So um, Ian's going to share with us the next three micro caps to blow up, <laughs> and we'll do that toward the end of the show. But uh, I want to talk about some of your writing. You're a real you're a really good writer, and. You don't, you don't exclusively talk about microcaps at all. Um, you talk about investing because in the end, the same principles, there might, be, there might be differences in the way that you apply this stuff, but the same principles um, are in play, whether you're investing in Apple or you know, a $30 million market cap. Like There are some like, just key things about being an investor. I wanna share something that you wrote um, in a piece called From Hustle to Scale you're drawing the line between something that's a hustle versus something that can can really become a business. So you said what you consider scale is growing from 50 million to a $200 million market cap. So that's a big distinction for you. That that that's a line in the sand. Okay. You said a mentor once told me, "quote, for a stock to double, other investors need to think it can triple." For a $50 million market cap to go to 100 million, most investors in the stock need to think it can go to 150 million. The move from 50 to 150 or 200 takes serious fundamental drivers and deliberate execution. Fundamentally speaking, for a microcap to go from $50 million to $200 million, you are looking for a management team and a business that can grow earnings from one to three million to 10 to 15 million. This isn't easy. Few microcaps can cross this chasm. Can you say more about this concept?
1: Yeah, I mean, in my earlier career, I made a lot of money on hustles. And I kind of got that hustle term. I mean, obviously, the word's been around forever. But Ben Bishore from Permanent, he's the one that first kind of talked about that. And we're good friends now. And and it's really these companies that only have two or three kind of key people there. And they never really expand the business past that and you You can't build a $200 million business with three key people. You can get up to 10 or 20 million if, if they're in the right spot at the right time and you're basically just reacting to everything. And you know, those three people are, you know, wearing all the hats from HR to, you know, garbage man, to dishwasher, to the CEO. Sounds like us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, but you can make decent money, you know, in those stocks, but you just have to be aware that it's kind of like a reverse cigar butt where there's probably one or two more puffs of growth where you have to ask the real question is, is this management team one that can really scale? Right. And, you know, so now with kind of how I invest today, I'm, I'm really trying to find those companies that can scale up and out of the microcap ecosystem. That's everyone's goal. And so trying to really analyze the management teams, the culture, the processes, um, you know, to, to see if this is something that can really become a small. Management
3: cap. is really important in, this, important in this size as- asset. Because, so how do you analyze that? Yeah. Well, a lot of it's
1: kind of common sense. You print up fake business cards. Yeah. Right? He told us. Exactly, yeah. So a lot <laughs> of it's coming. take common, a bus to New York. It's Go like, uh, you know, looking for repeat winners, people that have done it before. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, I don't do a lot of screening, but I do do some screening on insider purchases, you know, that kind of alert me to a new management team, putting skin in the game, taking over something, and having it turn into something else. Like, that alerts me to something. So a lot of times it's diving in into those management teams and seeing if they've had a history of success. So a lot of this is kind of commonsensical, like, have these people – Built or founded, built, scaled other lar- other businesses into large ones and sold them. When you, you see know. when you see
3: Fortune 500 executives in press releases announcing that they're taking jobs at a microcap company, that's got to get you excited. No, because it doesn't get you no, excited.
1: No. Why? Well, it's. I mean, they're used to being the C-suite of Google. It doesn't really help a microcap company that's probably cash-strapped.
3: Oh, I see. Okay, you know, it's
1: like that doesn't impress. I want to see entrepreneurial experience, not okay, not someone that you know. All right, not VP of marketing. Correct. Have you okay. ever
0: hired a private investigator?
1: I haven't, but I know plenty of other folks that have. That's where the alpha is. Well, it's it's not a bad idea, you know. Well, not,
3: most of the investors who hire private investigators though are probably on the short side, not the long side. Would you agree with they that? They
1: do, yeah. yeah, yeah. But but I, I've seen both of them do it, and in some cases, you know, I think it's it's money well spent.
0: What well, the there is, there is, I'm sure, opportunity on the short side as there is with all areas of the market. But I would, I would, I would assume that there are a lot of micro caps that turn into nano caps that go bankrupt. Are there a lot of short sellers in that in the space? There, there's less
1: short sellers. There's more activism. Mm. So seventy percent of all activism is in the microcap area. Interesting, because it's easier to take over the board. It's easier to get. You know, it doesn't take as much money. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's so most activ- activism actually occurs in the microcap level.
3: You know, there's a phenomenon where sometimes an entire sector becomes microcap all at once, and I remember seeing that with precious metal stocks in the early stage of my career in the late '90s. All the steel mills went bankrupt, but before they died, they were microcaps. We're seeing that now with cannabis companies. I looked at Canopy Growth the other day, Mike. What would you guess? Remember, Canopy Growth was the hottest uh-huh. uh, stock in the space. What would you guess its market cap is right now? $2 billion. Yeah, it's $258 million. Wow. So it's a micro cap. And, and this was a – honestly, I'm not even making this up. People were like, oh, that's the blue chip uh, cannabis company. I guess they had a big investment from another large company. But this was a $41 stock two years ago. It's 44 cents right now.
0: Let's so see. so in, you don't know, so a company like that I'm thinking of uh bird scooters which had a 2 billion dollar market cap it's now 27 million. This th- those these, are fallen angel.
1: These don't yeah. interest you. Oh, not at all. Okay, yeah,
3: that's yeah. what I was that's yeah. what I was getting to. Yeah. When you see a whole sector all of the stocks become microcaps within the same year, mm-hmm. that that's got to be more like a red
1: flag than like an opportunity. <laughs> so some, some people are tra- like I think it depends on how you invest. Like I'm not attracted to that. Okay. Some people are, you know, if they like to look at dumpster fires and try to figure out the one that can, you know, because yeah, all, I mean, I all guess, it takes this bird to go up to 57 million market cap and it's a double from of all know,
3: the ways to make money. No, that seems to me like the most desperate and like the least appealing. It's like, I'll, I'm going to buy all these pieces of shit and like one of them won't be. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I couldn't get excited about that. All right. Is there anything else that we didn't do on microcap before we get into the, the wider world with you?
1: Um, I think we covered everything.
3: All right, you want yeah. to throw us a few tips?: No, <laughs> no, all right good. Smart. Smart. <laughs> not at all. I like that. Uh, this was an interesting week. We started getting uh, we started getting a lot of data telling us that not only is there not going to be a recession in the second half of the year, but like actually things are getting better, uh, oddly. Uh, and I don't know how closely you follow this stuff, but it's it's. I think it's important to get into some of the reports that we've seen. Mike, do you want to you want to start with this Carl tweet?
0: Sure. This is Carl Quintanilla uh, quoting J.P. Morgan's Campori Alley. I don't know what that person's role is. So let's say they're an economist. I'm guessing. Uh, said they. He said, "Quote: This is what a soft landing feels like. They cut their recession odds from 40% last year to 25%, and the the." The data just keeps coming in better than expected. Um, there was, there's the city surprise economic surprise index, like had an explosive week. So it was a, it was a very good week for data. Uh, durable goods, home starts. Uh, it's, it's all trending in the right direction. And put up this home, put up this uh, home price chart. So this
3: is the 20 city composite growth diffusion index. It's like the biggest metropolitan area. This is, uh, areas. This is Bank of America. First, it's a third, it's a third month in a row um, where we're just we're just seeing positive month over month growth. Um so year over year home prices are negative, but over the last three months things are getting better. And uh, B of A basically says the existing home sales market is still tight due to limited inventories, but strong demand for new homes have likely added strength to the pickup in April home prices. Overall, the recent data suggests the trough in the housing market has likely been reached and demand is helping the sector's recovery. Um, Furthermore, the lock-in effect, homeowners unwilling to list their home due to locking in low mortgage rates has effectively placed a floor underneath prices. Right. So, I mean, this is something that everyone understands this concept. There's not enough houses. uh, Put up the second charge on and people aren't willing to part with their 3% mortgage for a 7% mortgage. Um, so this is home prices rising for a third consecutive month, but they're showing you year over year, uh, negative. So, but if that's as bad as it gets, again, combined with three and a half percent unemployment, it's really hard to forecast a recession with a straight face, unless you think like that's going to
1: reverse itself overnight. I don't know. Thoughts? What are your small business owner clients saying? Like, uh. it's, it's getting back to being a microcap investor. Just, yeah, I'd rather talk to people than—
3: None of them—I like, mean, I never hear stories about, like, a wave of client negativity. Mm-hmm. But we're skewed. We're dealing with rich people. Yeah. And they really didn't experience a recession, uh, even in 2020, for the most part. So They may have for, like,
1: a month or two. I don't
3: mm-hmm. think that our clients are a great canary in the coal mine for any kind of sea change in the economy. Um, I just don't—I don't, don't think—like, if that were to become apparent— now, from a business owner standpoint, that's a subset of our clients. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think people hated the supply chain stuff more than they hate anything going on now. And that seems to have run its course. I, I talk
1: to four people when I want to get sort of a gauge on the economy. Buffett, Munger. Yeah, yeah. personal okay. connections. Paul yeah. McCartney. Yeah, exactly. My right. mentors. yeah. Uh, there's four people. One of them owns um, a fairly large residential construction company. So he's fine. Another one owns um, a fairly large fleet fueling. So he's delivering diesel, you know, all that type of thing, B2B, like even to air products, even large companies like okay. that. Um, I talked to, actually, my, my brother-in-law took over the family business that I was supposed to take over, but instead I got into microcaps. And they do um, basically advertising, like you know, the McDonald's tractor trailer that looks like a Big Mac up there. Like they're the ones applying oh, that wow. on there. Cool. You know, and, and then I'm trying to think, who was the other one? Oh. Another friend of mine is he has forty trucks that you know the big huge trucks that carry heavy equipment that have oversized load in the back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I talked to him, and so it's kind of interesting because you get a pretty good gauge by talking to those four individuals on what exactly is happening. And yes, it's somewhat insulated because it's in Lancaster, but they all kind of go up and down the East Coast. With but they the don't businesses. do
0: they don't do AI. So right, That's
1: yeah, right. exactly. Um, but each one of them, you know, so the residential builder, you know, he said that people were still buying at six and a half. They don't like seven percent interest rates. That's, you know, the, that's, that's the ceiling. Yeah, he's like that's where you're starting to get really, you know, pushback, and okay. where he has to give deals. You know, on the fleet fueling side, um, it got it was bad like back in March, for um, some of, like the dry goods side. But he said now it's kind of coming around on kind of the heavy machinery moving and stuff like that. That was kind of that's kind of getting washed out because there was too many trucks on the road. It's hard hard to get anything. Nobody's saying anything bad. Like my my brother in law's business that it's a sizable business. Like he's just wrapping new vehicles for businesses. So he's a good he's a good person to talk to because his business is people businesses buying new trucks. Yeah. They need to buy new trucks. Yeah. And he's beyond busy.
0: So I, I think there's a big difference between opinions and and vibes, as it were, versus the hard data. And if you look at hard data, now stock prices are not hard data. Um, but they're not just opinions. It's the aggregate opinion. It's a, it's what mm-hmm. the market is. You look at industrials breaking out, materials breaking out. John, put tr- up the home builder chart. Transport's breaking out, it's, home builders going vertical. That S&P, h- home builders, ETF, XHB,
3: up 32% year to date with what interest rates have done. So it's kind of incredible. Well, right? that's
0: a special situation yeah. because home builders are the only game in town, right? Existing home sales, th- mm-hmm. there are none to speak of. So you've got... You've got that. Again, I hesitate to use hard data with stocks. But if you think about like, the difference between surveys and hard data, the chasm is pretty wide. Mm-hmm. So Bob Elliott tweeted, today starts a series of highly focused uh, on PMI surveys that offer no actual information value. S&P Global PMI and ISM surveys have been unrelated to actual measured activity for years now in the US. It's a waste of time to focus on them. Um, and so he, he threw up a bunch of charts. But people pay a lot of attention. To this data of how purchasing managers feel about the economy, I love this
3: take. I love this take. But when
0: you overlay it with actual data, nonsense. It doesn't matter how people Mm. feel. No, it it doesn't matter because you can, you know, feelings can translate into they can manifest themselves in the real economy. But everyone was waiting for the recession, right? The Fed was trying to manifest it with ten consecutive interest rate hikes, whatever it was. They froze at the housing market, tech declining, uh, layoffs. And we just haven't seen it. Now, there is a case to be made that there's a lag, right? Like, just because they hiked so aggressively, it doesn't mean that, like, instantly, business are going to absorb it and react. But it's been, like, a while. It's, mm-hmm. been, it's been over a year. It's not in the data. People aren't getting laid off. Inflation is cooling off. You had a higher GDP revision today. Employment is still super tight. Where's the recession?
3: Here's the, here's the mother of all soft uh, data. John, Consumer Confidence. This is from MarketWatch. This came out this week. Consumer confidence hit a 17-month high. A survey of consumer confidence jumped to a 17-month high of 109.7 in June, reflecting a slowdown in inflation, okay, and fewer worries about a recession. The closely followed index increased 7.2 points um, from May. The May reading was the lowest in six months. So it's a big bounce off of a low reading. Notably, the future expectations index, which is a sub-survey within that, um, is still below the 80 mark which often signals a recession ahead. Um, The index has been below that level in every month, except for one in the last 16 months. Americans think inflation will continue to slow. They see prices rising 6% in the next year, the smallest reading since the end of 2020. Again, it's soft data, it's feelings, it's vibes, whatever, but it's still, it's from a lot of people. So you kind of, you could say, "All right, it's a survey. They'll feel better when things get better, and and then vice versa. It's kind of like concurrent,
1: um, but but so what? It's improving." People want a recession so bad, especially in finance. It's like, you know.
0: It's, yeah, what is that? I don't know what it is. What like, do you think even, that? What do you think that is? I think are, it's they, f- are they bored? I think it's a few things. I think number one, people are underinvested, right? So I just think that's just it's bitter, which I totally understand. Th- if you feel like you were promised a recession, it didn't come. You thought that you were going to get bargains, it never came. Uh, I think it's the yield curve being inverted, just basic, like, that tells you something. It's got to tell you something. It has to mean something. Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, And I think you're taught that when the Fed hikes so aggressively, they're trying to cool the economy, they should be able to cool the economy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, all that jives. It makes sense. And it just hasn't happened. The idea of a soft landing seems so uh, minuscule, like, the, the odds of it happening And to think that they might pull it off. Now, you know, they they might not, but it's certainly trending in the right direction. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, even I was looking at uh, consumer debt delinquencies. It's still basically at lows.
0: Yeah, back to 19... There's no signal there. Back to 19 levels. Uh, Luke Kawa tweeted, recession is in a recession. As of June 23rd, weekly mentions of recession in news articles at its lowest level since April 2022, roughly cut in half versus the start of the year. And I feel like this is... It's just the boy who cried wolf thing. You could only oh uh, look at this. How often can you talk? Wait, about? when did
3: this peak, Mike? Uh, uh is that June, July,
0: July twenty twenty two.
3: So that's when it was like obvious that we were going into a recession. Yeah, the, the most obvious. Um, wow. So th- so those articles uh, double topped. Would you would you, <laughs> would, um, would you buy that
0: formation? And then and then I think also people thought that like the banks were going to be the canary in the coal mine. There's going to be a credit crunch. Banks are going to stop lending. Uh, housing was going to take the economy, commercial real estate is going to take mm-hmm. in the economy. Well, guess what? If unemployment is below 4%, you're not going to have a recession. Jay Powell
3: spoke in Portugal at a central banker event uh, on Wednesday. And this is from the journal. Powell said, because the Fed had lifted rates so quickly last year, there hasn't been enough time to see the effects of those moves in slowing economic activity and inflation. Quote, policy hasn't been restrictive for very long. So we believe there's more restriction coming. Powell said he doesn't anticipate core inflation will return to the central bank's 2% target until 2025. If that article had come out in March, the Dow would be down 1,500 points. Am I exaggerating? No. We don't give a shit anymore about what this guy is saying.
0: Well, it's incredible. One of the things that was also underestimated in this cycle – uh, rightfully so, by everyone, myself included, is, and this is a BlackRock, uh, not BlackRock, like Bank of America take. Like, everyone aus- underestimated the ability for gigantic corporations to protect their margins. And they got the memo and they got the memo fast. And they did what they had to do, focus on free cash flow and whatever else. And they cut fat and they did it. And so analysts expected earnings to decline by six, and they didn't. Everyone got offsides, too bearish. And uh, here we are. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, now you have a new earnings season in two weeks. So maybe we'll do it the reverse. Maybe. Maybe this time
1: everyone's expecting it to be okay and it's much worse. Maybe. I doubt it, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, well, it is that, like, kind of that bullwhip effect, like you said. Like During the COVID, everybody just got kind of slashed because they were scared. And now they're kind of maybe o- over-earning a little bit. But I don't know. It's just hard, like you said, to find any signal um, that this is a
0: recession. Let's do this AI thing. I mean, this is a pretty wild chart. So this is from Sakjan. They said, quote, We estimate that AI-driven surprises led to a 3 to 4% increase in S&P 500 earnings per share this year. That's not nothing. What does that mean? A what's an AI driven surprise? Well, Nvidia, for example, like didn't they up their guidance from like six billion to like eleven? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, something ludicrous so, in the next quarter. X Nvidia, is there anything here, or is it all that? That's probably Microsoft too. I'm guessing. Yeah.
3: Okay,
1: that makes sense. Do you know how many microcap companies have changed their names with put AI in it? Is that was is just that last way, week? That's the week. wave right now. Were they all uh, blockchain five so years ago? Yes. Yeah, okay. So yeah. now they're all AI. Yeah. There's one I followed that had like it was, it was a dog food company. There's a dog food <laughs> AI. Like I was just
3: just the Is dogfood.ai? Yeah. Is that their website now? No, I don't know. It should be. But so just, and
0: when when you're when you're investing, and I know these are these you're not trading these companies, right? You're you're actually buying yeah. businesses. But nevertheless, you do have to be aware of the economic regime that you're in with some companies more than others, do you think about that at all? Or are you trying to buy companies that are, you know, more or less uh, economically resilient, that would be less susceptible to a downturn? Or how do you think about that?
1: I think quality as an investment is defined by something that can grow, that also can survive, you know? And so I'm really looking for growth characteristics and survival characteristics. And on the growth side, you know, looking for something that can grow double digits organically, you know, for the next at least three years. Um, and on the survival side, having a balance sheet that can endure a recession has a business that maybe can grow through a recession, um, you know, and also you kind of have that intelligent fanatic leadership, people that have skin in the game that have financial resources. They can backstop the company if they have to. So it's a combination of really trying to find businesses that can grow through a recession, which you put that screen across 10,000 micro caps. There's not that many that come down the bottom uh, of that funnel. I would imagine
3: you get a, only a few. Yeah.
1: And so it's, you know, for, Right now, I have a, I'm very healthcare-focused just because it just happens to be a pretty good place to be if you think you're going to recession. You know, a lot of these companies have moats because of some of the the IP they have on medical technologies, things like that. And that there are also businesses that can grow, you know, 20%, 30% a year. So
3: speaking of AI, why do rich people love venture capital but hate microcaps? Aren't they basically just buying non-public microcaps?
1: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it's... It's really amazing when you think about it. So what like, is that about? Like it, what is that dichotomy? Yeah,
0: microcaps are a scam, but uh angels investing is exciting. Thank you.
1: Yes, Where exactly. almost nothing works, right? These, okay. these are all they're all small emerging companies, whether it's venture capital, small private equity or microcap. Just microcap has happens to be publicly traded. Why don't we just call them public venture? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, right? it should be. Doesn't
3: Toronto have a an uh doesn't Toronto have an exchange, the the Toronto they Venture, venture ex- Exchange? Yeah. Venture, yeah. Exchange. That's, where, that's where the microcaps yeah. trade. Yeah. That's where all the microcaps trade. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. So they, the whole the whole thing needs to rebrand, not penny stocks, not microcaps,
1: public venture. Well, and, and, I, and I'd be willing to bet like there's probably less failure in public microcap than there is in venture capital. There's you probably commis- just- You should commission that study and wave it in everyone's face. That yeah. would be interesting well, if that's it, true. And I think rich people just hate microcaps too, is because they can't actually invest in these, these stocks. Oh,
3: so I think you're wrong. I think they hate it because it's not exclusive. Yes. If I get into a company that's being backed by Andreessen Horowitz, that has eight 100 million times the cachet as I bought this thing with five letters in the ticker symbol on the fucking Toronto exchange. Yeah. No one's gonna think that's cool. No, amen, I mean, that's the yeah. difference. That's the difference. You, you that's sort of, the difference.
1: Venture capital. Like, John's
3: like that's four f bombs for you. That's it.
1: Three.
3: three. All right, I got one more. I'm gonna I'm gonna use it when it counts.
1: God. No, I was gonna say like you're exactly right. It's just like to invest in venture capital, you have to go to the right school, the right Ivy League school, know the right people, go to the right firm, have a certain social economic class to be able to actually get right. those deals. Right, and
3: any yeah. idiot
1: can buy uh, a, exactly. Uh, a, uh, a microcap stock. The whole so, ecosystem is open whether you have $50 million in your bank account or $5. Yeah, that's no yeah. good. You need yeah. velvet. You know, I agree. You need velvet ropes. <laughs> they
2: like the accredited <laughs> investor rule, right?
1: Oh, they love that. Yeah, yeah.
3: Oh, I'm accredited. Actually, I'm a qualified purchaser. <laughs> uh, you wrote this thing, investing is like golf. I love this piece. You wrote it in April, but I yeah. saw that you recently put it back out there. Um, this has nothing to do with microcaps. You told the story about John Daly in particular that I thought was pretty cool. Um, it's a story where Tiger is about to putt, and I forget the circumstances, but it was pretty important. Yeah. Uh, John Daly is playing like one hole over. He's not even in contention. He has as big a gallery watching him as Tiger does. He's smoking cigarettes. Yeah. So this is you. Um, this is a lesson. Oh, John Daly said, "When people see Tiger, they see perfection. When people see me, they see imperfection. I smoke, drink." Eat too much, gamble too much, failed marriages—they see it all. But they also see I'm not giving up. When uh, when people see me, they see themselves. When they see me win, they believe they can win too. God bless John Daly, right? Yeah, No, yeah. I know. It's was- that's my favorite athlete. Yeah. I would say. Yeah, he's he's pretty cool. I like when he puts with the butt hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> but wait, so what
0: does this stuff do with investing? What are the what are the parallels here?
1: Why don't you tell Michael? Well, I think there was I think there was three three stories in there. Yes. That first one was mainly just talking about, you know, if you really want to form connection with people, you know, you have to be vulnerable, you know, show yourself, be authentic. Yeah, smoke cigarettes, smoke butts on the golf course. It's very rarely people that are perfect that change the world. It's usually broken people that bounce back. Yeah, so you said, I always loved his response.
3: You impress people with your successes, but you connect with people through sharing your struggles. If you want to build real connection, it's more important to be honest, authentic, uh, rather than perfect, um, the other two lessons from your piece were: you are nowhere near the best investor you can be. Inside every investor is a better investor. So that it's a little hokey, but it's also true. I keep telling but myself that.
1: So Zach- <laughs> <laughs> that's what he says every time he hits. Uh, enter. Every- I think that story was Zach Johnson. So Zach Johnson was a professional golfer. He won two majors, I think, sixteen times in the PGA Tour. And what made him unique was he wasn't the number one golfer on his high school team. He wasn't the number one golfer on his college team. He didn't even win a collegiate tournament, but he ended up winning two majors, winning 16 other times. And when they interviewed the number one, um, his friend that was the number one player on his high school and college team, they were just like, he just had this ability to get better every year. And in a sport where people peak early and plateau, he just kept getting better. Like John Daly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
3: Um, And you said, less. the third lesson you shared is golf is the sport that is most like investing and in stock picking. Your opponent isn't the other players. The opponent is the golf course and yourself. That's good. Play your own game. Don't get distracted by what other investors are doing. Okay. So at a professional level, you kind of are competing with other people,
1: but most people playing golf are not. No. Okay. No. I mean, and I think there's a, actually, there's this book right here. Yeah. I think some of the best books. What was, is that book called? Tell everybody. Golf is not a game of perfect. Who wrote it's that? It's a golf classic. Okay. Dr. Bob Rotella. Okay. It's probably one of the most read books on golf. And w- what I found, whether it's this book or there's another one by Raymond Floyd, some of the best books about investing were written about golf because it's all mental. You know, any individual sport, it's mainly 90% the mental game.
3: So but you know? what, what do you say to the golf is like poker people or the golf is like baseball people, right? Because everyone has their yeah. favorite go-to sports. And I like the golf
1: one. Yeah, I'm not really a golfer, but that makes sense to me. A lot of it's just like, I think the biggest lessons are just bouncing back. You know, golfers have the ability to hit a bad shot and just... And you have to keep going. Yeah. You're going to hit a lot of shots that day. Yeah. Me and especially. Even, I'm going to hit the most shots. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, are you a golfer? You seem to be very fluent in uh, professional golfing. I do. I do like golf. I, I don't play as much now that I have a seven and five-year-old at home, but but I do enjoy playing.
3: Okay. We're going to do one more today. Uh, everyone in Silicon Valley's on drugs. Is a Wall Street Journal story this week. I think it's a perfect explanation for 2021 when you, you know, when you, in hindsight, of course, uh, but the venture capital backed startup valuations, the crypto bubbles, the SPAC mania, if if everyone, uh, here's the Wall Street Journal, Elon Musk takes ketamine, Sergey Brin sometimes enjoys magic mushrooms, executives at VC firm Founders Fund, known for their investments in SpaceX and Facebook, have thrown parties that include psychedelics. Somebody said NARC, sending a Wall Street Journal report. Uh, Routine drug use has moved from an after-hours activity squarely into corporate culture. Uh, Psilocybin, blah, blah, blah. Oh, here's a great quote. There are millions of people microdosing psychedelics right now, said Carl Goldfield, a former sales and marketing consultant in San Francisco. Okay, not a doctor. Uh, He says it's the fastest path to opening your mind up and clearly seeing for yourself what's going on. This, to me, is the biggest difference between Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Let's, for argument's sake, say that there's as much drug use on Wall Street as there is in Silicon Valley. Probably different drugs. Wall Street, people working in finance would never give uh, uh, interviews and say that they're doing anything. Mm-hmm. That, like, to me, that's a really big difference. People in Silicon Valley, are like, yeah, I'm, I'm on mushrooms right now. I
1: don't know if people are just bored or just don't have any fulfillment from their families or what it is. But.
0: So, what drugs are you
3: on today?
1: <laughs> just water and Wilbur Buds. I don't know. What'd you, what'd,
0: <laughs> what'd you think of this? I am um, take. I took a microcap before I started. <laughs> you on um, microcaps? Matt Levine had a great article, and the headline was Silicon Valley is on Drugs. Yeah, that, I think it explains a lot. Not to be a dick. Nah, like, come on. No, it doesn't. explains what? How? Explains everything. Everyone's not on drugs in Silicon Valley. Come I don't know.
3: I don't think so. But some, but the fact that it's that in the open is interesting to me. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not giving them money. Uh, I just think that's a really big difference. You could conceivably manage billions of dollars as a venture fund and have highly placed people working there openly taking psychedelics at a party, and nobody would think twice. The I don't. The ketamine think, thing is interesting. I don't mm-hmm. think you could do that in Connecticut. Running yeah. a hedge fund. I just don't. Yeah, I don't think so
0: either. I know there are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are people that will say that there are actual medicinal benefits to a little bit of, of mushrooms. I haven't heard that about ketamine.
3: No, ketamine. So, all right. So I know some shit about this. A friend of mine that I grew up with, he's in Florida. He's opened a chain of places and it's like PTSD therapy. So it's, it's not like, they're not snorting lines of special K like like we did in the, in the 90s. This is like, uh, supervised by nurses and doctors, but they are using ketamine for PTSD, and it's a lot of soldiers. Hmm. Okay. I'm sure not everybody's showing up at these clinics, but it's legal. And right, Duncan, have you heard about this?
2: I, I've heard about ketamine a bit, but it's mainly it's an anesthesia drug, right?
3: I think the original usage was to do surgery on pets, hmm. and but they found like they found like a psychedelic. Benefit to it for. Tri- I've heard
2: the same about magic mushrooms, uh, psilocybin, for for vets with PTSD and stuff.
0: Yeah, they're using they're using this as part of a bigger therapy. Although I have heard about people microdosing, like in real life, and being able to like function. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you take like a tiny bit to what end? I don't know. Maybe it makes you relax. Where is the more.
3: line? So you're an expert on this stuff. Where is the line between <laughs> microdosing and just dosing? I have no idea. Do you think must- <laughs> Do you think Tesla drug tests
0: employees? There was, I think they do.
3: I yeah, always better, be better be on drugs. Don't you come back here. Don't you. you come back here negative one more time, you're fired. It was in the article, something about drugs. All right, listen, I don't really care. It's none of my business. Let people do whatever they want. Okay, did you have fun on the show today, Ian? I did. It was great. All right, we're going to turn on the mics and do this for real. I just wanted you to get a little bit of a feel for what it's like. Right, let's keep so, going. Yeah? All right, you want to hit record? Uh, we do favorites to close out the show. And, this is, and I, I see you've brought props, which is great. So we're going to have you go first. Tell the audience about some of the stuff that you're reading.
1: Well, we already hit on golf is, is not a game of perfect. We I think we maybe hit on. No, tell us about this. All right. So speculation as a fine art and thoughts on life. This is. Looks like a 30 page book. It is about Great. 35. That's this is Jesse type. Livermore's favorite book. Okay. That a lot of people don't know about. It was written in 1880. Really, the first six pages are all you need to read because that's the best part. Um, oh, this is the best book I've ever heard of. Yeah, exactly. It's okay. a short book. I wish okay. I more of them. Um, why do you like it why did you bring that with you today i don't know it was just on my desk and i knew we wanted to talk about something and okay. a lot of people don't realize this was everybody loves jesse livermore and they think they think they quotes. do until exactly. they actually learn something about. right him. and then he killed himself so yeah but not, this was not a great book. guy yeah okay um and then this is the oh yeah yeah, yeah. i don't know if All you guys right. read that oh. one yet That's so this, a, this is entertaining so this is
3: ringmaster yeah is this Vin, new
1: about vince mcmahon i think it just came out a couple months ago so i started reading this in the train who's right the author here. who wrote it uh abraham reisman did he get access? Like, are people talking to him? It's mainly just talking to everybody but him, I think. Vince is not talking. Correct. Vince should have done his own book 10 years ago. It's crazy. Like, it, the book starts off and it talks about, like, why was it in April of 2020 when the world, whole world is shutting down, the only thing that's open is a hospital, that that there was a loophole put into the Florida Florida legislature that allowed basically just him to have sporting events through COVID? He was the only one? <laughs> Pretty much the, the only. wrestling <laughs> and nothing else? Yeah. Oh, I love this guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, and basically it was into the politics of it, but it was pretty, it's a good lead into it. All right. So, uh,
3: what, is, so what is it called?
1: It's called, it's called Ringmaster. Ringmaster. When did this come out? I'm only 60 pages in. so See, I don't this should know be, this this should be a, a, a movie. I, I think
3: mean, so I know, too. I know it will be a movie. It's a crazy story. Yeah. yeah, it's only a matter of time. All right, Michael, what do you got for us?
0: I saw a trailer that I cannot wait to see. Mm. Here's the tweet from Hollywood Reporter. Duncan, are you shaking your head? <laughs> Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson can't stop driving. Or his family will explode in the first trailer for retribution. Can they make this movie speed? So it's like speed. However, so I was already all the way in for this trailer. And yeah. then I'm, I'm like, sign me up, Liam Neeson, doing anything I'm in. But then you find out that he's being targeted because he was like a a money manager that didn't do so well.
3: Oh. Not oh, really his
0: performance wasn't good.
3: Yes. I'm real in. Oh, Ian, what's the Pando tree system? How, Tell us about this. How is old this is drugs? Liam Neeson?
0: How old? Yeah. 73. What do you think? Still doing action flicks, huh? You still t- tough yeah, he's son
3: awesome. of a bitch. What's the Pando tree system? So, John, uh, can we put this picture up on screen?
1: Okay, tell us about this. This is it's really random. He's
0: seventy-one. Is- same thing.
1: So, this is the Pando tree system. It's a clonal tree system, which basically means that it's hundred acres of trees. Each one of these trees is genetically identical to the next one, and it's and they're all um, use the same root system. It's one they're giant. All, all of those are connected all of them. underground. Hundred acres. Yes. Where is this? This is in Utah. Okay, is that the only place where this is? There's like two or three other places on earth where they have these clonal tree systems. This is one. it's been, it's supposedly like the second oldest organism on earth and the, and the largest, also the largest organism on earth. But you know, it's a hundred acres and it just keeps How old do we think this is? 100,000 years, they say.
3: This is 100,000 years yeah, that's old? What they're saying, And yeah. every season it comes so back?
1: The, the leaves turn yellow in the fall and I guess they're really flat and really rigid. So like just a little bit of breeze goes through them. It makes this rustling. It's called the trembling giant. And they, I've never been there, but they and say, this is all one organism. It's one organism. Hold on, so hey, if are I you, cut are, one are of you these down. To, to the, <laughs> is that what we're talking <laughs> I know, about I yeah. know. Like, I was like, this <laughs> is not good timing for me to explain this. <laughs> if
3: I cut one of these down, though, do the other ones like feel it? I mean, I know they really don't feel it, but like, is
1: there an effect if you, if you screw with one of these trees? I, I have no idea. I didn't dig into it that far, but you know, it, it, it was something that, that was new to me. And I often thought it'd be surreal to like just go in the middle of this thing and just like look around and be like, this is one giant thing that had been. It's yeah, that's kind of cool. It must yeah. be one of the largest organisms on Earth. It is. Also, I, I think the largest is like some coral, algae coral, thing or coral something. Coral reef. Yeah, Maybe. it could be. Yeah. Okay.
3: All right. Very, very cool. My favorite. Very simply, the best show of the summer. And if you're not watching, I feel bad for you. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put you onto this. If you don't even know, it's on Hulu, but it's an effects show called The Bear, and it's season two. Season one was amazing, and this is even better. Than the first season is anyone in this room aware or watching the show? Aware. Oh my God!
2: It's the show about the guy cooking. Yeah, it's about
3: it's about so much more than that,
0: Duncan.
2: I didn't it's love about, the first it's season. It's about life. Everybody else
3: did. You didn't love the first season, did you? Half watch it with a phone. No, I or? watched
0: it. I, I I don't I don't know why it just didn't <laughs> click with me for some reason. Everyone everyone loves it. Okay, well
3: it's exploding in popularity yeah, yeah. now, and a lot of people that missed the first season or didn't appreciate it are going back. I'm gonna try the second. It's it's very very good. It's like a it's a very high-end chef who ends up back in his family business, which is like an old-school Chicago beef sandwich. Yeah. Um, the characters are written really well. The actors are all amazing in their role. Is it the same cast? It's the same cast, but they've added people. And actually, we just learned that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis joined the cast, and she's playing the mom oh, nice. of this family. So Is Bernthal in it? Uh, no. Uh-huh. He, he, he was in it last season, yeah. but he was in a flashback. You just ruined that for everyone. No, I didn't. <laughs> uh, anyway, if you are interested at all in food or Chicago or Wilco, which is very heavily represented in the soundtrack, everything about the show is your is your vibe. So highly recommend. OK, uh, we're going to wrap it up from here. Ian. I want to tell people where they could follow you and where they could learn more about your style of investing
1: and the Microcap club. Where should they go? Uh, I'm on Twitter. My handle is my name, Ian Castle. And, okay, uh, it's, wait, that's C-A-S-S-E-L. Yes, I-A-N-C-A-S-S-E-L. Okay,
3: perfect. And what about the site? And you can find me on microcapclub.com.
1: Okay. And what do you do at MicroCap Club? You you write? You have a blog? Yeah, we have a blog there. You know, okay. That's where we have probably 250 of the best microcap investors on the planet just talking about what they like and why.
3: Look at that. Hey, you crushing on the show today. We appreciate you coming all the way from Lancaster. Thank you. My uh, all we buggy and all. So. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to get into the chocolates in a little while. Uh, Duncan, any announcements?
2: So I have one review to read. Let's do um, it. I know Jill listens to all of our shows, so this one's Hi, for Hi, Jill. Her. Put Mom on the Phone wrote, Jill is the perfect addition, guys. Usually like your show, really love it when Jill S is on.
3: We can't afford we can't afford to hire Jill full time, but we'll definitely we'll definitely have her back. Thank you for that comment. We appreciate it, guys. All right everyone, that's it from us. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the show, like the show, favorite the show wherever you listen on your favorite podcast platform. Ratings and reviews go a long way. We will be back next week with all new shows. Stick around. We'll see you then. Thank you so much. Dude, was that good? That was awesome. Yeah? Alright. Well.